Coming up, it's a special all DC DNA podcast. Tony Kornheiser, Dave Chang, who just made history, delivered one of the great Asian sports moments of all time. It's all next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. After four years away, it's the return of a fan favorite, Arby's Brown Sugar Bacon Sandwiches. Stacked with sweet and savory bacon that will give you a candied feast for the senses. Available on BLT, roast beef, and turkey sandwiches. Try Arby's Brown Sugar Bacon Sandwiches today. Order the sandwiches online or on the Arby's app. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Limited time offer at participating U.S. locations while supplies last. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network, where we have an announcement on the podcast front. The Mismatch with Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon, a podcast that has been a staple of The Ringer NBA show for the last four years. It is moving to its own feed. Congratulations, fellas. Same schedule for them. They're going to be, I think, Monday nights. Tuesday mornings range, and then uh, Thursday nights, Friday mornings range twice a week on their own feed, which you can subscribe to on Spotify or on Apple, wherever you get your podcast, The Mismatch. Subscribe now because they are doing a, another podcast at the end of this week and the Ringer NBA show. Stay tuned because we'll have a couple announcements on that front too. Congratulations to KOC and Verno. I look forward to subscribing to The Mismatch. Coming up, my friend, Tony Kornheiser, you know him from PTI, you know him from the Tony Kornheiser Show podcast. He's going to come on and talk a little sports with me. And then my buddy, Dave Chang, made some history on who wants to be a millionaire. And we're going to talk about that and what's going on with the restaurant industry as we head to the end of 2020. It's all coming up next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right, Tony Kornheiser is here. I like to check in with him twice a year. Um, one of the few people I know who the pandemic really didn't change his life that much. He still gets to play golf. He still gets to hang out in his house. What has it been like to do a daily sports show uh, nine months of a pandemic style in 2020? Uh, it's a godsend. I mean, I'm extraordinarily lucky. I have both jobs. I have my podcast, and the podcast is now instead of five days a week, we've changed it to three days a week because what drove it originally was sitting in a room with five or six people. And because we can't do that, it has become sort of a call-out show. It's a little bit more sports-oriented than it normally would be. I don't know if this has happened to you as well, but I've had to adjust on the fly. But I'm doing it three days a week, and then I'm doing PTI whenever we're on the air and we're not preempted by something. And so... Having something to do, considering I can't go anywhere, 
having something to do makes me extraordinarily lucky. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah. And I think of somebody like my dad who, you know, lives in Boston and barely gets a chance to go anything and he's afraid to be in public, but he tests it sometimes with an outdoor dinner, maybe something like that. But it's weird times. And I, it feels like as the weather's starting to turn, everybody's starting to get tired of it. And that you see these, these leagues plowing along and we're in a situation with football where they've just basically decided, look, the, the, the engine's going to keep going. We're going to keep, we're going to keep playing. If we have weird situations, we will plow through it. We might postpone a game by a day or two days. It's a really strange thing to be in because on the one hand, morally, I feel like, man, I, it's, this doesn't totally feel right. On the other hand, there's so much money at stake. I want the players to get paid. I want things to keep going. And I feel like my own morals shouldn't matter about it. Plus, I'm watching. Where do you stand on the whole thing? Well, we get, we get a tremendous amount of conflicting information. I mean, I live in the city where Anthony Fauci lives and practices medicine. And I don't know him. I've never met him. But I know a lot of people who do know him and studied with him. And whenever he's on television, which is with decreasing frequency now, I always watch. He was on Meet the Press just Sunday with Chuck Todd. Um, Chuck Todd was a regular on my podcast because he, he bets games. He bets football games for me against the number, which always makes me, I'm thrilled by that because he's Chuck Todd, for God's sakes. So I'm watching him interview Fauci, and Fauci basically is the prophetess Cassandra, a prophet without honor, telling you exactly what's going to happen if you don't pay attention and nobody pays attention. So on a, on a larger level, I've got that. I, I talked about this the other day. There are these commercials, these incredibly skillfully done Beautifully crafted commercials for Harris Teeter, for Coca-Cola, and for Walmart. The theme is always the same. It's to have fun with your family and your loved ones at the holidays. And in these commercials, Bill, nobody's wearing a mask. And you watch, you know, you sit, you look at these commercials, three enormous companies that you think have a social conscience, and you go, what are you doing? Why would you air this commercial? Why would you try to convince people that this is the way you ought to behave. Shifting it to sports, you, your, your wording is totally correct. And plow through. That's what all these leagues are doing. That's what the NBA did. It's what the NHL did. It's what baseball did. It's what football is doing. They're plowing through and because they're businesses. And this is the only way they can make any money. I mean, they probably lose some money. And the NFL doesn't lose money. The other leagues probably lose some money because they get no gate or anything like that. But the alternative is to lose more money. So they try to convince you this is a real season and not a season with an asterisk and try to get you to watch. And most of us do watch. Well, I shouldn't say that because ratings are down 50% across the board. But many people do watch because it is their relief from the horrifying cloistered boredom of their lives right now. And I'm, I'm one of them. I watch, I watch. And I, I am of two moral minds about this. I had, um, I talked to Mark Maskey the other day, who I've known for 40 years at the Washington post and who covers the NFL. And I was asking him, and by the way, if I go on too long, just tell him to shut up. But I was asking him about what appeared to me to be the obvious disparity in the way the Baltimore Ravens were being treated coddled. I said, with their game moved, you know, whenever they wanted it to be moved, moved and moved and moved and moved. 
And the Denver Broncos, who do not have a quarterback, that's my dog barking, they do not have a professional quarterback, and they are doomed to lose that game. It's an impossible, it's totally impossible. Cannot win the game. And he said what the NFL is doing is they will not postpone a game. They will not move a game for competitive reasons, only for medical reasons. And I I've at least felt sort of satisfied by that explanation because there's an outbreak in Baltimore and there was not an outbreak in Denver. It was just the misfortune of a quarterback getting it and all the other quarterbacks having to quarantine. You know, yeah, so. and it felt like they were punishing Denver a little bit because yes. they weren't careful yes. enough. Whereas in Baltimore, it's like a legitimate outbreak like you could have anywhere in the United States. Like the Miami Marlins had. Although the Miami Marlins, a few games were postponed, but they were picking guys off the street. What I, My position was you have flexible rosters in the NFL, and everybody knows what the possibilities are, so why isn't Baltimore playing that game? Why yeah. not? I so. do wonder... You know, we're all losing our minds because this has been going on for nine months. So anything that seems like it might be remotely normal, we convince ourselves is normal. And just the way we live our everyday life is starting to feel normal, even though it's not normal at all. And I do wonder, like 25 years from now, when people look back at right now and they're just like, wow, the NFL, they, they just plowed along. They were getting that season done no matter yeah. how they got there, it was happening. And I, I bet future generations will be confused and slightly horrified. In the moment, it doesn't seem maybe as bad as it will be when we have some distance. I'm trying to think of other sports kind of moments or whatever that have, have kind of taken well, on World that. World War II. What was canceled during World War II? What, what went on and what was canceled? We look in a mirror that's 80 years ago we look at that and, and they say, oh, yeah, in World War II, they didn't have this or they didn't have that or the Olympics, you know, were not contested. I, I think that people will. Well, I, I won't be around to look back from that distance. But I think kids from the ages of about like I have two grandchildren, three and one. They're a little young, you know, for this, for any real cognition of this. But you take kids, you know, from about eight years old up all the way through high school. You know, how are they going to be affected by this? How is how skittish are they going to be about resuming normal behavior? How much will this be imprinted on their brains that there was this period of time where everything seemed so different and contact wasn't made? This is a, 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 a foolish little anecdote, but I'll give it to you anyway. I was at a doctor's office about a month ago, and I was introduced to another doctor in the practice. And that doctor reached out her hand to me to shake my hand. And I realized in that moment, I did it, even though I knew it was sort of weird in the moment. But in that moment, that was the first person's hand I had touched in six months. Yeah. In six months. It's, weird, right? It's not, uh, it's definitely not normal. I don't know if you've done any dinners, but even, no, I went out to dinner no. twice in the past three weeks, including with David Chang, who's also on this podcast. And the first two minutes, you're just like, wow, my friends. And they're right there. They're not on a Zoom. And, and there's like this giddiness to it. And you don't even think about, you know, you're basically rolling the dice with whoever you're with. You're hoping that they've been as safe and as responsible as you have. And, you know, you're, you're outdoors. You're not right next to each other, but there's, it's still a little risk. And in the moment, you don't care because it's so exciting to just 
be normal, but you're not hugging. You're not shaking hands. You do like the elbow bump and then you just kind of have a couple drinks and eat some food and, and forget about everything. But, um, I've, was- I've gone out to play golf because I do, I've heard from enough people that outdoors is relatively safe, far safer than indoors. I've gone out to play golf once or twice. I've had a beer afterwards with the guys I've played with, but as the tables near me began to fill up, I left. Yeah. Um, I haven't had any of those outdoor dinners. I haven't had those. I've had takeout food and felt uneasy even standing around waiting for the food to be brought out in a bag. I mean, I'm old, so I'm I'm in what is called the vulnerable group right. here, like your dad. And and so I'm, I'm very conscious of that. But I, I also, I think it is so freakish to sit in a restaurant and be served by people wearing gloves and a mask. I just, I will not do it. And shields. And they have like these shields, like what did you read? I mean, I can go to a supermarket, you know, and and buy things and get in and get out and go the right way on the one way in the aisle and try to get out within 15 or 20 minutes. And I think that precautions are being taken, but somehow restaurants and bars and places like that make me far, far too uneasy. And, you know, and I also, as you know, I don't do the zoom calls because they are completely freakish to me. I will not get on those. I did that once and felt I was in a very bad movie and I got out quickly and people even said, what happened to Tony? <laughs> you know, well, Tony left, he left. You have some advantages during a pandemic. One is basically you were 90% quarantining anyway. You, yeah. You're hurting a self-induced quarantine. Two, the, right. thing, the thing that you really love to do more than anything else is golf, which is the one thing everybody can still do. And then the third thing is you can always blame technological idiocy slash ignorance, which allows you to avoid all Zoom calls and all annoying office meeting interactions. I don't know how you pulled this off. Yeah. um, Yes, I have created my own bubble. I live in it. And because (laughs) of my age, uh, people just say, well, he's just weird. He's just old. He's cantankerous. You know, you got to let him do what he's got to do. Now, I I take phone calls. I'm happy to, to talk to someone if they want to talk to me and I'm happy to walk around, walk the dog a lot and all of that, but I am freed. Yes, I am freed from the social burdens that other people still have to maintain. I'm freed from them. It's good. It's liberating. You really pulled it off. I, I think it's probably been a Thank lot you. harder for Wilbon who, who thrives well, on Wilbon interaction. Travels. Yeah. He loves traveling. Yeah. He, he gets on airplanes all the time. He's in Arizona. Now he'll be back here. He'll go back to Arizona. I, we had this conversation. He was in Arizona about two months ago, two or three months ago. And I asked him the difference between Arizona and D.C. And he just said, it's, it's total night and day. Nobody out there wears masks. Nobody out there, you know, they go to restaurants. They do everything they do until the governor at some point, I guess, shut them down. But he said what he noticed is, is and he was the first person to use this phrase to me, COVID fatigue. It was, you know, he had it and everybody around him had it and they were giving into it. And I just, you know, sort of shrugged and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay in the house. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it that way. Now it's, it's, I think it's more wearisome and going to be much more wearisome because of the combination of the holidays. And if you live anywhere other than where you live or in the deep South weather, yeah, it gets 35 today. So nobody's going out. Nobody's hanging around outside. It's 35 in Washington. So that changes things. I wanted to talk about one of the big trends from 2020 that 
wasn't really pandemic related, but and we've discussed it a little bit in previous things we've done, but not to this degree. The, uh, the way people report on athletes now and how it's swung. And I was thinking about, um, you know, when you were, you were on the rise writing features for the Washington post and inside sports and sports illustrated and, and they, you, first of all, you had better access to everybody. And if you're doing a profile of somebody, you actually got to spend time with them. But there wasn't the fear that there is now of harshly critiquing somebody, you know? And I, and I think part of that has to do with Twitter, the talking head stuff, clips getting cut out. Like if you rail on somebody on a show, that clip will get cut, put, yeah. on, put on Twitter. The athlete has a chance to fire back all that stuff. But you could argue it was too harsh the other way, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Now it seems like we're more player friendly than I think we've ever been um, covering sports. What's it like as somebody who's had all kinds of jobs in sports media to watch this? Well, I mean, I, I think if there is a big change, there is a change in the rigors and the expectations of journalism. And I think that has to do with social media that, as you know, I do not access ever, no mm. matter what. So I'm speaking blindly about this. But it does seem that in when I was coming up, it's not that you didn't like the players. It's that you sort of understood you were a reporter. That was your job. You weren't doing commentary. You weren't preaching. You were a reporter. There was a set of rules. So you went to where the news was and you reported on the news and you were not to become friendly with those people you were writing about. That was not just an unspoken rule. That was a spoken rule. You didn't, you just didn't do it. You became friendly enough to have access to them. But what was paramount was fairness, accuracy and fairness. And I'm not sure that those are the most important words now. I think a lot of people probably you know, or headhunters, you know, that's that they want to make their reputation because there's not a pecking order in the way they used to be. It used to be if you got to the New York Times or the LA Times or the Boston Globe, you know, or Newsday, where I also worked, um, Washington Post, Miami Herald, you established yourself. You would come up through a chain. Everybody understood what that chain was. You went rung to rung to rung. And when you got to a certain rung, that newspaper was saying, he's our guy you know, something like that. And they don't, those rungs don't exist anymore. I mean, there's no centralized clearinghouse that says you should listen to these people and not listen to these other people. And I know I'm going to sound like, Hey, get off my lawn, but that's the way it was when I was starting. Um, and columnists existed. I don't think they buried people in the way, you know, it's when you sit down, Bill, when you sit down to write, if writing is important to you as it once was, and it was important to me as it once was, <laughs> then you didn't do six lines in a row killing somebody like you would if you're ranting on radio or on television. You know, the, the way it works now, there is a certain payoff to overkill. And then players, as you say, fire back. And players, by the way, they don't, they used to need writers. Players used to need writers to help them with salaries, to help them be employed. It wasn't just a meritocracy of talent. You had to sort of be, unless you were great, you had to sort of be pretty well liked and you had to go along to get along. And I, I don't, 
I don't think that's the case now. Players make so much money. They don't need, you know, they don't, they don't need to be certified by anybody with a notebook, right? You don't feel yeah. that way, do you? Well, I think there's, I think there's a lot more pandering than there used to be. And, um, I think they want to be friends. I think, yeah. The, and also the they want their the relationships team. and it's also easier to have relationships with athletes now because you can DM them and text them. And, uh, you know, I've certainly been guilty of it a couple of times. I did six podcasts with Kevin Durant in like a year and a half. Um, I do think that access is so much different than it was like when you're in Washington in, I don't know, 1980. And it's just, by luck of the draw, you were going to have the best relationship with anyone on the football team or the basketball team over a national person, right? You're there every day. Sure. Because I was there more frequently. Sure. Yeah. And now that, now those days are over. I but would argue. Were, wait, let me just correct that for a second because yeah. again, in those days where credentials mattered more, I believe than they matter now. Like, I don't know if you say I'm from Yahoo. I don't know how much weight that carries, but if you were Dan Jenkins, or Frank DeFord, or Curry Kirkpatrick, and you said, and I'm from Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Athletes sat up and take, they took notice. That was yeah. a big deal, right? Big deal. There were no national newspapers until USA Today came along, and nobody ever confused USA Today with the New York Times. They didn't. Well, you know what's funny? I think, I think basically ESPN has replaced Sports Illustrated in that respect because a lot of these guys are home during the day watching shows like your show and First Take. Right. And get up and all these dudes, these personalities, and a couple of the FS1 shows as well, all those personalities are people that are in their everyday life. So they're probably more prone to respond to those guys than they would be a writer. In general, I don't think a writer is going to have even 10% of the impact that they would have had 40 years ago, you know, especially oh, loathe as I am to admit it. You are so right. I've had athletes come up to me in settings that are not their settings. They happen to be there for a certain reason and introduce themselves to me. Yeah. I go, Oh, that's different. That's, that's different. But then I realized they've seen Wilbon and me on television for so long and that's what they consume. I don't think they consume the written word in a newspaper. They might on Twitter, but I don't think they do in a newspaper. I think, you know, I think that all of the things that I personally strived for, and maybe you did as well growing up, I, I, I don't think that's there anymore. I don't think that status, that cachet is there anymore. I don't. It's funny you mentioned the TV credibility thing, because I noticed that when I was doing the NBA show those two years, be, just being like, the previous couple of years I'd been to the finals. I'd stood on the court before the games. Then I was on that show. Yep. And even like standing on the sidelines, guys warming up, they would like walk over and start talking to me. And I'm, I'm like, are you talking to me? Like it, it made no sense to me, but then you realize like you've almost been vetted when you're on one of those shows, right? There, there's some credibility yep. vetting with these dudes. Cause they saw you on TV every day. So you must be Okay. And I was, you know, meanwhile, I'm writing the same columns I always would, but I always thought that was interesting. The, uh, the credibility bump. And I do think like, I, you know, a show like first take, which I think was a lot different than PTI in so many different ways and a lot more, mo more long monologues, you know, three minutes back and forth, stuff like that. And there was an anger toward that show 10 years ago that I think has completely gone away. Cause I, I think people get it now. There's, there's a, kind of a wink, a wink, wink to it. 
that maybe people didn't see 10 years ago. Maybe people thought they were just trying to start controversy. You guys at PTI, you always managed to be kind of friendlier and not like an angry show, more like we're kind of on the side of all this stuff, but we're going to be fair and harsh and critical when we have to be. You had that balance in the first year, right? Well, it's because of the backgrounds that we had. I will tell you now that I believe that Stephen A. Smith, who has worked for newspapers in his life, yeah. you know, and, and knows what it's like to have been a reporter, I would say that he is the face of sort of sports in America today, that every athlete knows him because he's also a generalist. He's not, he's not a guy who is introduced as an insider at the NFL and then therefore is not expected to know anything about any other sport. Steven is, is all things to all people. And I think that so many more athletes would recognize him than he would ever recognize going, going the other way because of that show and because of his personality. And I think he's, as I've told you many times, I think he's enormously talented and I really like his work. Wilbon and I were different because we were hardcore newspaper people who ascended to be columnists, which meant we could have opinions, but they were, I would say, more reasoned, more nuanced, and we were very, very friendly with one another. And part of the goal was to make each other laugh and to entertain mm. each other and then maybe entertain the audience by doing that. But we were not, we were not polemicists or anything like that. You know, that's not what we were. And that's not what we are. So it is funny how the structure of that show, no matter how much media changes, the structure is still unassailable. Like I, I remember I was giving notes on our we have a fantasy football podcast that I think has a chance to be really, really good. And in the first couple minutes, they were kind of dilly-dallying around before they got to whatever the biggest story is and just kind of yeah. starting the pod like shooting the shit. And I was telling one of the guys, like, look, watch PTI. They get to the biggest story at the start of the show and they hit it for, they hit it for two to three minutes. They don't fuck around. It's not like, Hey, Wilbon, what'd you have for dinner on Friday night or blah, blah, blah. They're like in, it's like, what was the biggest story? We're hitting it. And for that first 12 to 14 minutes, you're hitting the five biggest stories, period, or the four, whatever it is. No, that's exactly right. It's always the same. I always say, but we begin today. Like, okay, whatever we just did in the first 30 seconds that made you laugh, that's fine. But we begin today, and that is the biggest story, and we go in descending order, and we think about that. What are the stories we want to get to? What, what do we have to get to early just in case somebody's going to leave after 10 or 12 minutes? Yeah. And, and there's a rundown that is completely based on, now sometimes we're wrong, but what we think are the most important stories of that day. Yeah, that's the format of the show. Well, you know what's it's funny? Not, it, it's it not works. hold on, we'll get to this other thing at 5.45. No, right. no, 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 no. We're getting to it at 5.31. You know what's funny? I don't think TV shows translate to podcasts with very, very rare exceptions. It's a really good podcast. You just pop it, it on and it's like the first 13 minutes is just a snapshot of what were the biggest stories today? Carson Wentz, boom. Um, with the Ravens, they postponed the game again. What? What is the end? You know, you're just hitting all the marks. And even if you're, you could listen. You don't. You won't understand this, but you can listen to podcasts at 1.2 speed, 1.5 speed. You can conceivably plow through that 13 minutes of like nine minutes and just get everything. So. Well, I mean, uh, Mike used to say this all the time. It's a daily digest. That that's yeah. what we are. 
we're daily digest of sports. We're the compendium of that day. And, and that's our job. And again, because of our backgrounds in newspapers, we completely understand that. It's like, if we were editors, the meeting we would have is what's on, what's above the fold on the top, right. As you look at the paper, cause that's the lead story. Right. What's the lead. Right. Um, you have the 20th anniversary coming up. Is that, is that, yeah, but Isn't it's it next not year? for a while. Yeah, but it's next it's year. It's like October. I always thought the show started in September, but apparently it started in October. I wasn't aware of that. I don't know. I don't know why. But you lose track over a bunch of years. And that we're in the 20th year, if that right. matters. It's not, we haven't looked, we won't look back until October at a full 20, but you know, really, what's the difference? What's the difference? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra, not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. Let's do a couple of old guy who's been following sports for a long time stuff, historic stuff. Uh, is Mahomes the most talented quarterback you've ever seen? Yes. He's a wizard. Like you saw it the first year in Kansas City when he just came in. He's a wizard. He can throw it 80 yards in the air. He knows when to run and he knows how to not get hit and he knows how to find receivers. And there are, look, I'm old enough that Johnny Unitas is a god to me. Mm. And Tom Brady's achievements. I don't know that Mahomes will get to nine. I don't know that he'll win six. But that talent is surpassing. Is it not to you? Is it not surpassing? Yeah, I always thought, I thought Brady was the best quarterback I ever saw. I thought Rodgers was the most talented quarterback I ever saw. Okay. And, and well, I, I mean, Mah- someone like other older people would argue Elway, argue yeah. Montana. Yeah, sure. Um, before Rodgers. throws it like this guy. Yeah, before Rodgers, I would have said Elway. And now I would say, unequivocally, it's Mahomes. I had Tony Romo on my podcast last week. You know, whatever your checklist is of what a quarterback needs to have, whether it has 20 categories, 12, 11, I don't know what the final number is. He he checks more boxes than any guy we've ever had. Like, he basically is the same cannon that Elway had, except he could move better than Elway did, right? And he could throw more angles than Elway did. And, um... I just think and Elway was a great athlete. Elway was a bonus baby baseball player, a great athlete. Like it's, you know, don't look at the 35 year old John Elway, look at the 21 right. year old John Elway and Mahomes is better than that. And Mahomes comes, well, you know, look at, look at what he comes from. His dad was a major league baseball player, right? Yeah. He's the pedigree. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause I'm at the stage of my life now where I, I'm amazed at the guys. Like I was even amazed during the last dance how many people in my life were like, wow, I had no idea Jordan was this good. I'm like, what? You know, it was only 20 well, plus years ago, but you realize like 
people only have their frame of reference. It was the same thing when I was growing up and people would talk about how great John Unitas was. And I just didn't care because I didn't get to see him. You know? Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I mean, I watched Johnny Unitas. And I mean, I think you measure it by how many times do you get to the championship? You know, it's harder in football because there's so many more moving parts. But he got to a bunch of championships. Elway got to five. Brady got to nine. I, I don't know that you can require Mahomes, one player who's only on the field half the time. I don't know that you can require Mahomes to get to nine and win six. I think you have to just believe what you're watching. Yeah. You know, and look at the talent. Well, and LeBron's in a similar situation with the Jordan thing because he'll never top the 6-0 and in the finals, but he's right. trying to beat him with totality right. of career, which right. is I a mean, I, Well, the thing, I, the thing that separates them to me, and I love LeBron and um, so happy that he won and all of that, but what separates them is 6-0 and in the finals. I yeah. mean, come on, 6-0, and right? Yeah, but think about... You know, the Jordan Jordan got this big new victory lap this year. But then other guys just completely slip away. Like Kareem, who I thought had the best start to finish career of anybody. I don't think he was the best player ever, but I think he had the best basketball career of anyone ever. Uh, when you go Better back to than U- Russell? I'd put well, Russell right there. When you go high school, college, NBA, right, and you're talking 20s, 27 years where Kareem is just dominant at every level pretty much the whole time until the tail end with the Lakers. I think Russell had like the best full Mignon condensed, awesome career. And then Jordan, I think hit the highest peaks. And then you have well, LeBron I'm, I'm, who's basically trying to have a better career than Kareem did, which I think he's pretty much there at this point. So let me, let me push back a little bit and mention a couple of people like Jerry West, who's who the length and breadth of his basketball career is unmatched because he's still doing it. And he was an all American mm. college player was on an Olympic gold medal team. Russell was on an Olympic gold medal team. Russell won two, I think college championships. Kareem won three. No, Russell right? went, th- Russell had two college championships, an Olympic gold Olympics. medal, and then 11 yeah. for 13 as a pro. It's pretty, pretty good, it's a pretty it? crazy 14 year run. Yeah. 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 It's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, Kareem, yeah, uh, Kareem, his playing career was magnificent. The most length and, and absolutely magnificent Kareem. Yeah, sure. But, uh, impossible to cover, right? Probably the least, the least very friendly difficult. guy. Well, Bill Russell was very difficult and Kareem was very difficult. And it's so interesting to me now because I read Kareem's columns and they're really good. Yeah. He's really smart. And you just wonder you know, you, what you want to say to him, look, this was your choice. Okay. It was your choice to be who you were and deal with people in the way that you dealt with them. And I'm not going to get inside your head. I'm sure you had valid reasons to do all this, but do you think you missed out a little bit on what it would have been a much more adoring public? Right. So, uh, two more old guy questions. Yeah. How worried are you about baseball right now as a sport? Well, I love it. I love to watch it. Um, I set my clock by the Nationals games now. I watch them all and I pay attention. It's it's not a national sport anymore. It's a local sport. People cheer for their teams. I think that ratings, I think local ratings of baseball are still pretty good. Yeah. I do worry that it its audience gets older and older and older. But I, I assume that there's still some health in Little League. 
And I assume that that one thing that always was true about baseball, the passing down from father to son, I mean, I had it in my house and my son loves baseball. So I assume that that still sort of works and, you know, pass it down from father to son, father to daughter, mother to son, mother to daughter, because baseball always had been the most familial of sports. Are you worried? Yeah, I'm worried for the attention spans of younger people who watch it, which has been discussed ad nauseum, and also their complete yeah. inability to develop black American baseball players. You know, you have uh, the Dodgers win the title, and Mookie's the only black guy in the team. And in general, the, the amount of black people that are playing professional baseball now in the major leagues, it's comparable to what it was like in the 50s and the 60s, which makes no sense to me. So it it seems like if you're just talking about um, who's playing baseball, how are we getting more people to play baseball? Is baseball fun to play? How do you suck somebody in who's an awesome athlete? Would they pick baseball over football or basketball or tennis or soccer? Um, it's strange to me that baseball is, you know, one of, one of the sports that just isn't in the conversation anymore domestically. And I, I don't so know how they fix that. You, you said, like you said, it's an old guy question. Well, at my age, I, I can't, I can't relate to the notion of younger, younger, younger people not playing it. Cause I, in my own household, I saw my, my son play it and he's teaching his son to play it in terms of being representative of the culture. I, I mean, I don't, people make choices as to what they want to play and what those people that they want to emulate. And if there are not enough people who look like you in a sport, it's hard to choose that sport to emulate. No, so I understand that that's a problem, which I assume baseball knows far better than we know. Right. Right. And you also have a situation where basketball in a lot of ways has replaced baseball as the American pastime, you know, and the heroes that you had when you were growing up aren't baseball players anymore. They're basketball players and football players. And that's, well, that's a really tough one to overcome. Has the great advantage of not being a helmeted sport. You yep. can see everybody. You can see the people you want to be like. You can see what they do, and you can attempt to do that yourself. Uh, and I think also, I think at this point, basketball is a more worldwide sport than baseball yep. or football, right? They're drawing from all around the world in a way that the other sports don't. You know, it's funny. It's even being reflected in the sports card market. Basketball is like red hot, smoking hot. Unbelievable. The way baseball would have been 35 years ago and the older baseball cards are not like the same. I mean, Mantle and Koufax and Jackie Robinson, those ones will always be fine. But for the most part, it's like now it's LeBron, Luca, Anthony Davis, Le uh, the bird magic card, stuff like that. So in a way, I just feel like basketball has replaced baseball in a bunch of different ways. The ratings haven't totally caught up yet. No, the ratings the ratings were terrible, but they were terrible in all sports, but they were terrible in basketball. Um, but I, I think the that has a cycle. lot to do with what we started out talking about, that these sports have been jammed into a season that isn't even their season, and there was a sense that it was just the push by the architects of, of the game to get a champion and pay everybody out, right? Yeah. I agree. Last question. Who's your favorite golfer right now? Hmm. Well, I mean, I always like Tiger. I think Tiger is so 
extraordinary. And I always like Phil and I particularly like Phil in these exhibition matches because I love the way he talks. And I think that he should actually be, you know, doing sports commentary on all sports because I think he could do it. But if there was a person I like to watch more than anybody else, and it is still Tiger, you know, especially if Tiger's playing well, but I do like to watch. Hmm. I don't want to say they're all the same because, you know, when, when, when Dustin Johnson gets hot, he has no particular personality that brings you to the screen, but boy, he's a great player. Um, Justin Turner, like I oh. like to, I like to watch him. Justin I like the Turner. story that both his dad and his grandfather were pros. I like to watch John Rahm because at any point you think he might take the club and wrap it around a tree <laughs> if he hits a shot that he doesn't particularly <laughs> like. Right. I think they're all pretty good. You know, I do like. I respect Rory McIlroy, and if he he hasn't won in a in a while, it's not as troubling as Jordan Spieth, who seems to have dropped off the face of the earth. And I do. There are three young kids who are fun to watch. Morikawa is fun to watch. Hovland is fun to watch. And Wolf is fun to watch. So I've just named you about ten people, right? I think golf's in an awesome place right now, and I and I do think it's gaining steam again. You know, I, I think when Tiger basically got wiped off the map at the end of the 2000s. I think there was, you know, an obvious adjustment. Winning the Masters last year was a huge deal for golf, you know, that Mm. Tiger won. But that brought a lot of people back. Yeah, but also we got Beefy Bryson. I know you've gotten a lot of PTI mileage out of him. He's in the Well, Wilbon hates him. I know, but he's a good villain. I find him interesting and, and admirable, and Wilbon hates him. It's weird. He really does provoke reactions from people in a way that's unusual for golf. Golf is pretty bland usually. And with him, people have a lot of Wilbon like reactions. Well, the, the first day of the masters, the first day of the masters, the only stories worth paying attention to were DeChambeau and tiger mm. to see how they would do in the first day when DeChambeau was sort of ordinary, when he had said for me, it's a par 67 and then he shot like 70 or something like that. And by the middle of the second day, when he lost the ball, you went, okay, he's, he's done. So we don't have to pay attention to him anymore. Because if he had won um, that, the whole thing of is Bryson DeChambeau killing golf would yeah. have been alive for weeks and months, but he didn't win. He didn't even come close. So, no. My favorites are, I love Brooks. I hope he can get healthy next year. He's my favorite. I love John Well, Rahm. I love what he does with Dustin Johnson, where he basically says, you know, get out of here. You know, you're not, right? you're not that good. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. He almost is acts like a basketball player. Yeah. I like him. I like, uh, I'm with you on John Rahm. So talented. Always feels like he could self-destruct DJ. Yeah. yeah. DJ leaves me a little cold, even though I, I think yeah, because he has no personality. There's nothing there. Yeah. You don't know whether he could be up six in the fourth round or he could be down 10 in the fourth round. And you would have no idea because he's just this blank slate. So I, I don't, really enjoy that. But I do think he's so talented. He's like the guy you would cast in a sports movie to be one of the people going against, I don't know, Costa and Tin Cup two or something. So I like well, here's those guys. what happens with him. Like he's always in position to Eagle. And in the past he would three putt. So you'd go, eh, he's not very good. He wasn't a good putter, but he's gotten better as a putter. His personality is so dry though. Like Rory McIlroy comes alive and Patrick Reed comes alive. And this is what you don't see all that often in baseball or football 
it is what you do see in basketball and you and it is similar every once in a while in golf in that they're not wearing helmets and their emotions are fairly visible it's yeah. just they they in golf the director cuts away from golfers much more than in basketball the director cuts away from basketball players because in basketball you're there to see two or three people per team and you want to see them all the time all the time so dj reminds me of tracy mcgrady who i really liked but was everything came so naturally to him it was almost annoying that he wasn't better even though he was a top five guy for four years yeah. and you're watching him going, man, you should just be the best player. This is disappointing. And I think DJ is the same way where he, he finally wins the masters and everybody, part of the reaction was like, wow, he hasn't won the masters yet. He's the most talented guy. How's that not happen? So it's almost like he can't win even when, uh, when he's winning. Um, all right. Can I go to Tracy McGrady for a second? Can I ask you this? And I, yeah, I'll bow to your superior knowledge in basketball. Well, what did Tracy McGrady do that, you know, I mean, it's a sport where you're one of five and you would think that one of five would be able to influence a team, not necessarily to win championships all the time, but he never got out of the first round. I know. Right. He never well, got out of the first round. That's the thing. And that's why I, I, I'm doing this book of basketball podcast that I've been doing because it's so interesting to look at some of these guys and kind of reexamine them. You're going to be on one of them soon. Um, but T-Mac is a classic bad luck guy, right? He leaves Vince Carter, goes to Orlando. He thinks he's going to play with Grand Hill and Grand Hill breaks his ankle and is just never Grand Hill. And he wastes all this time right. there, goes to Houston and ends up with Yao Ming, who in retrospect, even though it was nice to have two awesome guys on the same team, was kind of a bad fit for T-Mac because you have the seven foot six guy who's just blocking the lane. You know, I think if we knew what we know about basketball now in 2005, you would want T-Mac just like everybody spread out with him attacking the rim and shooting threes, but we didn't know about, so he has this whole career and it's like, man, I wish we could just do that again and try it, try a different team, different offense. I think he was really talented. I actually think he's weirdly underrated because everybody just hangs the playoff record on him. And in this case, I'm not sure what else he could have done with the teammates he had. Well, okay, so the pushback on that is every once in a while there is a supremely talented person who falls into the underachieving rank because of performances in playoffs. And yeah. I'll give you Barry Sanders with the Detroit Lions, who everybody thinks might be one of the five greatest running backs of all time, but didn't do it in the playoffs. In, in basketball, the whole season is the playoffs. Yeah, That's it, the playoffs. I'm with you. And and that's, that's why McGrady is such a fun guy to talk about. You know, he, he was the best player on a team that won 22 straight games in the regular season, which is weirdly the best thing he did. But it, as you said, it's the regular season who cares, but yeah. you have to be really good to be the best, especially the team that he was on that year. So yeah, it's a complicated subject. Um, Tony, it was a pleasure as always. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure, Bill. I would, I wouldn't go on with anyone else but you. And when I, I get off the phone, I'll even say, why did I go on with him? <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. 
you know, I'll mess around with some other ones. But for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra. Not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game. Right now, than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. All right, Dave Chang is here. We're taping this on a Monday. Last night, Dave was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and became the first celebrity ever to win a million dollars, which I would have really loved to see unfold, not knowing what happened. But of course, we had dinner three weeks ago and, and you blurted it out and swore me to secrecy. But my kids who knew nothing... My son has never been more impressed with any friend I have. So let's start there. You've impressed my son, who is unimpressed in general. But you you set a record here. More importantly, for people who uh, who you know have have gambling issues, who <laughs> who want, want to roll the dice, you're a hero now. It actually worked out. It is a positive gambling story. Can you yeah. believe that? Oh my god. And if I got Ben Simmons' approval, then uh, I don't need to live anymore. That's that's it. I've reached the pinnacle. I wish I had been there as this was unfolding because I have gambled with you. And (laughs) I I think both of us have the same issue where we always think it's going to turn around. We're always going to roll the dice. We're always going to go, you know, it's 3.30 in the morning. It's like, oh, new dealer. Things are going to turn. We're hopeful gamblers. And uh, in this case, you're trying to win a million dollars for charity. You correctly assess it as, wow, I'm up to, what was it, 250K, where the first time you're like, oh, I could just bank this. This would be a lot of stuff. And you start thinking, no, no, actually, if we got to a million, now I'm actually going to raise real awareness too. So what was the the gambling problem versus uh, awareness for the charity you're raising ratio in your head as this is unfolding? It was a fight to the death. It really was. I I watched it for the first time last night, too. And I think right around the quarter million mark, that's when it gets to be a big delta between that number, 250 plus, and the 32,000 minimum that you can walk away with. And it started actually to get serious at 64,000. Because I think I made at that question the most cavalier decision of just being like, fuck it. I'm not going to ask anyone. I'm just going to guess because I was like, it's not that bad. And yeah. it's not embarrassing. My whole goal was I just don't want to be the laughing stock of, you know, of of a millionaire. And then you got the, the questions really do get more difficult and more difficult when you're in the chair. And right around the 250, half a million dollar mark, that's when uh, I'm thinking just constant fear of 
you're just going to fuck this up, Dave. You're just going to mm. fuck this up. So I, uh, yeah, I honestly don't even know what I was thinking because the rational side of me is like, you should bail at half a million dollars. Clearly. I knew what you were thinking. Cause I know you and I could see your fucking wheels turning. <laughs> Once you once you realized the million was in play and you had two yeah. questions left, but I had I not understand. known what's going to happen, I would have been like, "Oh, he's going for this. He's just well, going for yeah. it." Yeah, I mean, those that know me, of course, know like I I can't resist that that impulse. And then the 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 calculation that I didn't verbalize that I think I tried to explain on the million dollar question was, if I lose, it's actually sort of a win, as embarrassing as it would be, because. If I walk away at half a million, no one's ever going to talk about it. I mean, there's yeah. six celebrities that have walked away from half a million. No one ever knows, you know, those names or even the charities they were for. And the restaurant industry is totally fucked right now. And mm. I just don't think on the media's end, people are talking enough about the problems. And, I, and this was all the way at the end of August. And I just was like, what's the most embarrassing thing? And then if I had to explain to people that I did it to raise awareness, then in my mind, it would sort of rationalize me answering it incorrectly. And, um, and also, all that aside, I have a gambling issue, and that's ultimately what, <laughs> what, what pushed, it up, pushed me over the edge. Well, you did it. The, the smart move was when you rolled the dice at the 64 because you kept all your options open for help later on. And you also got rid of the 50-50, which I agree with. I think the 50-50 is a little overrated. That's actually compared very, to compared to the difficult. other ones, right? Yeah, but it's difficult. I sort of regretted doing that because it was either 50-50 or ask the host. But you're you're close with Kimmel. Kimmel knows a lot of stuff about pop culture. Yeah. And I thought the 50-50 would come into play very handy uh maybe later on, you know, like the million dollar question. So I I I debated that quite a bit. I think they edited out a few, few, you know, me hemming and hawing over what to actually do. But, um, well, um, that was a good one to, to get rid of. More importantly, I mean, beyond the million dollars you raised for charity and the fact that you now become the guy who's mentioned, you're like Flipper Anderson on Sunday <laughs> when they were like, Tyreek Hill, 262 <laughs> yards. The record is held by Flipper Anderson. You're just mentioned on who wants to be a billionaire for the rest of your life. But more importantly, one of the great Asian sports moments of all time. <clears throat> Thank you. I don't think it's going to enough play. Yeah, Linsanity's one. Not only do you get to a million, but your your dream team of smart people you assembled, Mina Kimes and Alan Yang. That is going underrated, I think. Uh, team Asia America to the highest degree. And, <laughs> you know, people don't realize Al Alan's really goddamn smart. I mean, he graduated right. Harvard like 19 or 20. And yeah. Nina, it was like an English major or history major, and she graduated near the top of her class at Yale. And I graduated with a C-plus from Trinity <laughs> College. So I was leaning on either of them, right? And I remember asking Mina or Alan, whoever got back to me first would have been my um, friend to sit down with. So I, I, I don't know if it's got enough play that it was an all-Asian team that broke the 20-year drought. It was such good drafting of your teammates that I didn't even get offended that I wasn't even considered for, because <laughs> you figure with me, sports and pop culture, I, I have those two covered. I would have been in trouble with the Batman question and some well, of the I, other stuff. But Mina, of, Mina and Yang was an unassailable combo. I have, I I have thought no about complaints. It a lot. I thought about it a lot, Bill, of course, because you, 
people obviously listen to you. They don't, they may not understand your encyclopedic knowledge of stats. It's, it's insane. So that, that I knew was going to be easy. Uh, but I also know you don't know too much about like sci-fi and certain kinds right. of fiction, comic books, comic yeah. books. So I made a list and you were certainly there and it wasn't about making the all Asian team. I really was just trying to go with, you know, like the stats the give me the, the, the highest quant number stuff. And I, I, it came out to Mina and Allen for me. So we have Linsanity. We have this, we have Koo and the Falcons. Yeah. What else do we have this decade? Those are probably, is that the big three? Is there one more? I think that might be it. I mean, you have. Oh, wait a second. Oh, Mina told me, because, and I think we might even talked about this in pod, like the the Koreans have claimed Kyler Murray here. Oh, that's right. Yeah, this is another thing, right? It's very clear. Well, he got off uh, the Cardinals airplane wearing like a Korean shirt. And I think that represented to everyone that's Korean. It was like, he's in a racial draft. He's ours now. That's it. We we get to take him. <laughs> yeah, so that was a big one too. And he was in the MVP discussion. Mina texted me because we were texting about this morning and we were talking about you and your love for gambling and how, you know, that there came a moment where we were like, oh my God, this is so much money. And it's like, no, got to keep going. Mina said, what you witnessed is the inherent contradiction that lies within all Koreans, extreme cautiousness and an addiction to betting. <laughs> do, do you agree with that? That is the truest statement I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, a real paradox. I was one side of my brain being like, hey, I can't embarrass. This is a lot of money. And the other side, there was no, <clears throat> no reason. It absolutely makes no goddamn sense why I decided to go for it. Like, it was just crazy. It's totally insane. Well, especially when you didn't totally know if Benjamin Harrison was a president or not. And I got to be honest, I didn't either. But I knew, <laughs> I knew it wasn't Grant. So the last question for people uh, who didn't see it was basically who was the press first president who had electricity in the white house. Yes. And two of the, two of the candidates were Grant and Andrew Jackson. And I knew those weren't, I knew those two weren't because it was too close to the civil war. And I didn't think they had electricity in the white house, probably to the late 1800s. So it was between Benjamin Harrison and Chester Arthur. Right. Which if you had done your 50, 50, if you'd kept it, had they narrowed it down and it had been the two, one of the civil war presidents with Benjamin Harrison, I think you would have known, but you had Mina instead. It took you like 17 seconds to read the question. Yeah. She I had 13 <laughs> seconds to digest it. And she basically spat out Benjamin Harrison, then got cut off. Yeah. And, and if, if uh, you, you watch the show, we go back and call her after I win. And she says she was going to add but Grover Cleveland, who wasn't even part of the list. Um, right. So all five of those presidents sort of were presidents in succession, starting with uh, Johnson, Grant, and then it goes Arthur, Harrison, Cleveland, or something like that. Anyway, yeah. I, uh, the 50-50 would not have helped me out at all. In fact, I probably would have chosen Chester Arthur or something like that. I, I, I legitimately didn't know the answer. I didn't even know Harrison was president. And that was, for me, my personal gambling intuition was, the, mm. aha, aha, this is a, I have no idea. That's got to be something, right? And I, I knew Chester Arthur was a president. I had no idea what year. So it was really, to me, Harrison was the thing that stuck out the most. And then when Mina said it, but it wasn't, she said, probably, that's yeah. what threw me off. And then you had Yang, who 
came through big time with the Batman comic. Dude, he was so Mina deservedly getting all all the hype and praise. Like, there's yeah. no question I wouldn't have won this without her, but I wouldn't have gotten here without Alan Yang. I mean, that guy saved my ass in so many ways. Like, I honestly didn't know Bill, even the first one, the Clean Play Club on the line, like the, a couple episodes ago. I, I had no idea because when you're sitting in that chair, all sort of form of reason and logic for me sort of went out the window. So it was great to have someone to just be like, you sure this is right? You sure this is right? And then that Superman question, did you know that answer? No, I, I would have been out. <laughs> you you would have gone to me and I would have just had the, the, the uh, I'm trying to think of a good football coach, the Matt Patricia look <laughs> on my face, just <laughs> staring helplessly. Because <laughs> I, I had no idea. I, I, and he, and I was a little bummed that he didn't know definitively what the answer was. He was like, I think it could be Superman holding a car over his head. So... I this was big to, for Yang. I, yeah. you know, Yang was running out of ways to um, get women. I think he only had about <laughs> fifteen different ways. So now, now he's got the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire as well. Just an unassailable package for that kid. Really, sort of the MVP, right? Like if I had to give an MVP <laughs> of the series, you know, yeah. Mino got the last winning game winning shot, but yeah, Yang Mino's is like Steve series. Kerr in the Bulls. The Bull. <laughs> what year is that? Ninety. Bull, first Bulls Jazz series. Yeah. She came in and hit the 18 footer, but Yang was Yang had a triple double. Yang was a series MVP. When when you're sitting in that chair, and the adrenaline's really going, so now it's like the equivalent of if we're playing blackjack, and you split threes, mm. and then you get another three, and, and all of a sudden you have seven hands on the table, and your heart just starts pounding. Is it like that multiplied by 700? Yeah, you're probably playing third base anchor. And let's just say you have five hundred, a thousand dollar, you know, what a, a lot of money per hand, and you get eights, and yeah. you keep on splitting, but the dealer's showing, you know, a jack ten, yeah, and you split it now to the maximum four or five times, and each eight you're getting another eight or a three, and you got a double, and that's what it felt like. Each question was like more splits and more doubles, and. um it was, it's really hard. Like watching from TV is, is easy. Like everything sort of makes sense when you're hearing the question. The thing that threw me off though, would add to the pressure. If you're playing blackjack, this music that's like blasting into your ear. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So like in casino, you're sort of like, you know, you're only in your little bubble and the lights are flashing. And if there's music that I think would add to the adrenaline rush at the blackjack table. You know Kimmel pretty well. I do. He's trying to do these, keep the drama going, be suspenseful, fuck with you, which is his favorite thing to do with anybody he knows. So th this is like everything he's ever liked about anything. And he's drawing out whether you were right or wrong once we get to like 64K. Were you just like scrutinizing him? Like he was, like, what, what is that experience like? It's almost like waiting to get like an STD result or something, <laughs> something terrible, <laughs> you know, because it's like over and over and over. Even questions like, uh, what was a, what's animal can't jump? And of course it's an elephant. You still think you could be wrong. Every question, at least from my perspective is I could be wrong. It's not like I'm right. And Jimmy, even on the simplest ones is just fucking with you. Right. And there's, yeah. I honestly don't know how he did it. Right. I thought maybe they're like writing it out on uh, his computer screen because it was like so perfect in how he fucks with you. 
um, particularly how he sort of like draws out the answer. Uh, it's it was it was excruciatingly painful. Yeah, he's very did good you, at it. Did you think at all of having Jay Gruden as in the Alan Yang seat or no? <laughs> Daniel Snyder, who who would have been the worst candidate? Daniel Snyder probably. No, no, Jim Zorn. <laughs> Jim Zorn. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just would have stood there in complete silence the whole time. Um, all right, tell tell everybody about the the charity you did it for and why you did it and what it means. Well, uh, my buddy Chris Shepard started a charity a few years back um, called Southern Smoke, based out of Texas, but it has evolved to become a national charity that has teamed up with a few other smaller ones to basically give financial assistance to anybody in the hospitality sector basically getting a grant for money. Um, and that's one of the, it's one of the very few national charities that does that. So that's why I wanted to do that. Um, there's so many worthy charities, but, um, this culinary industry, the restaurant industry is just getting demolished right now. So, uh, that was the one I had to choose. Let's, let's take a break. And I want to talk about, uh, what's going on in the restaurants. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe Spring. On the way, warmer temperatures, more time outside, more time away from your home. Do yourself a favor. Make sure you're doing what you can to protect your place and get a Simply Safe home security system, comprehensive protection for your whole home, a great way to keep you and your loved ones safe. What if you're going out for Easter for six hours? You don't think the burglars are going to figure that out? That y'all y'all packed up your car at like 1130 on Easter and you drove off somewhere? Yeah, all they need is an hour. I'm not the only one singing Simply Safe's praises. Simply Safe, named best home security system in 2024 by US News and World Report, recognized for the best customer service and home security by Newsweek. Protect your home today. I use Simply Safe and love it. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when they sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/bs. Don't wait. That is simplysafe.com/bs. All right, we're back. We uh you mentioned restaurants as we head into the break. You and I and a couple of our friends who we went to Parks Barbecue, I think three Fridays ago, did a distance dinner. And we knew it was kind of the last supper. Everything got shut down um, within probably a week after, at least here in LA. And depending on what state you live, things either really shut down or they're kind of shutting down or, you know, who knows. But I think for the most part in the big restaurant cities, it's looking bleak and it looks like it's going to be bleak for the next four months. What What is the way out? Wait, what is, let's say the vaccine comes April, May. Life starts to look relatively normal again by next September to be safe. What are, what do restaurants look like by then? I don't want to be doom and gloom. I usually am doom and gloom. It's not good, uh, even with the vaccine. And first and all, first of all, we have to get through this winter and shutting down. Listen, there's a healthy debate about whether that should even be allowed because of of COVID, right? And I think if we had government assistance, we should have shut down. Um, and it could have, we didn't have to be here, number one. Like there were so many other avenues and we got here out of sheer incompetence from our government. And it's unfortunate because it's a trolley car problem. A lot of restaurateurs and, and workers don't even want to be there out of safety, but like they feel like, oh, I sort of have to. That being said, you have to get through winter. You have to figure out how to make ends meet because the fixed costs of restaurants haven't changed. And we'll see. I, I don't know what's going to happen. If we don't get a stimulus package for 
both the workers in restaurants. That is what's most important. The people that work in restaurants have to be taken care of before the restaurants. Um, that is a longer story, but that's just what I think. Uh, because you, you can't save all the restaurants. That's just not going to happen. So let's just say Georgia flips and we get stimulus. And that's probably the most important thing we can have happen to, to ensure that the two Senate seats in Georgia flip. Let's just say all that happens and then we get a vaccine. You're probably going to have a bunch of closures between now and then until spring. It's right now a survival. Who can make it to spring? Yeah. Right. And then because outdoor dining was such a boon to so many restaurants. Um, that's my concern is right now we can address one problem that I know is going to be an issue. And it's not fun to talk about, but I mean, we're doing this by Zoom right now. Um, we both have employees and it's not just that everyone that works may never go back to their corporate office environment like they used to, you know, yeah. maybe it's two, three days, maybe it's four days. If you remove one day a week of office people going to work, that's devastating for the restaurant industry one day, right? We're talking about slim margins at best. And that's a giant repercussion from getting your coffee in the morning to your lunch salads and sandwiches, you name it it makes it difficult because corporate business is so important for restaurants. It's very similar to uh, the economics in, in flying commercially where the business class takes like 20% of the real estate on a plane, but like 30%, 40% of the revenue, very similar for restaurants. Regardless, it doesn't have to be a fancy restaurant or not, because in New York, if you are a bodega and you sell bacon, egg and cheese sandwiches and dollar cups of coffee, like those are people that are going to work yeah. without that income. It, unfortunately, like I'm not an economist. It has repercussions that I, I don't think are going to be good. And we can address that now. And we're not. And that's why I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Well, and also all the live event stuff in the bigger cities, I think is a disaster too for 95 total, different Total reasons. disaster. And but more we don't even know when that comes back. We don't know no. when. I mean, I think the leagues are optimistic and places like Live Nation, they're optimistic too. Like this summer, people are going to want to go out and do stuff again. But, you know, it's one of those things we need to see it. I do think if we get the vaccine going and uh, everything could be ready in time for the summer, it could be a really cool summer next summer where everyone just letting loose. I mean, even when we saw each other a couple of weeks ago, um, and I've had a, a couple distance dinners and I, I've tried to make an effort to see people a little bit more because I think everybody starts to lose their mind when they've just been around the same people, same environment all the time. But um, I do think there's an appreciation now for gathering with other people and seeing other people and not having your face covered and all of these basic things that we took for granted. So I, I do... The optimistic, the optimistic bill, glass half full bill thinks when this, when we can get through all this, it will actually be really good for restaurants. I just don't know how many of them are going to be left. Exactly. And I think you just accurately predicted what's going to happen. Restaurants aren't going away. I mean, this is not the end of restaurants. It's just a lot of restaurants that shouldn't have gone out of business probably will go out of business. But the that mere act of breaking bread, of talking to people that you care about, laughing, drinking, having too much wine. Like, these are the best things, right? Like, I miss it so much. I mean, I'm so tired of cooking in my own home. And that yeah. dinner we had was a total blast. And I take that for granted all the time. That was one dinner. We used to have dinners all the time. I know. <laughs> you know? know, and and, and um, 
you know, I am I'm, I know what I just said is pretty dour, but I am absolutely optimistic. I do believe that we're going to be able to, you know, support the business in the right ways. I have to remain hopeful in that. Well, if we go glass half full with some stuff, like you mentioned how, you know, human beings adapt, like we did it with podcasts. Now we never thought to do stuff on Zoom until March. And now we do almost all of our podcasts on Zoom. I think you're right about offices where maybe people don't go to an office five days a week. Maybe they'd go three, stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to think how this could be good for restaurants, like what the positives are. One of the things is I do think they've gotten better at the delivery stuff, you know, and whether it's basically all the good restaurants now being on Postmates, Caviar, DoorDash, Uber Eats, whatever it is, they're all on there. Um, especially out here in LA, there's restaurants I'd never ever in a million years thought would be on a food delivery site that they are. Um, I also think they've gotten better at, you know, cranking the stuff out, being ready to to handle demand, things like that. And maybe that's just where things are going. Maybe less people are going to go out to eat and maybe delivery is going to be more and more important. You've been saying this since like 2015. Yeah. I mean, I started to do businesses just uh, doing delivery only. They were a little bit too early. Um, but you're right. You know, delivery is the future. And, you know, this pandemic hasn't... It, restaurants experienced difficulty. This was going to happen regardless of the pandemic. This was going to happen over a 10 to 15 year period. This just accelerated it all into nine months. And there's no question that if you didn't open up your business to delivery, things were going to get tough. That was happening anyway. And in fact, I'd argue the people that were like had that already, like Sugar Fist has been doing really well. They already had the delivery and the packaging and restaurants like that have been doing extremely well, like high-end sushi, because it's just certain things were designed to be delivered. They're crushing. Um, but if you're trying to figure out that game, it may not be the right thing. Like pizza has been crushing. I mean, that is probably the number one food to be delivered. But, um, you know, for us, we're Momofuku, we, we're lucky because we're selling consumer product goods of salt and spices and soy sauce and stuff like that. Like that was part of our plan to evolve out of the restaurants anyway. So, you know, um, anything and everything's on the table, right? And if you're a restaurant, or if you're supporting restaurants, you should support them. I think you should choose two or three restaurants that you love and spend as much money as humanly possible there. And if you are a restaurant owner, I think you have to, it's almost like the end of a season when you know you're not going to make the playoffs and you start trying to do whatever the fuck because you're like, who cares? Yeah. And then, and you're not out of the playoffs quite yet, but you're like, screw it. And that's where we're at. And that is very, I, I love that part where you have nothing to lose. And that's where I feel like a lot of restaurants are going to do a lot of innovation. That I think is going to be super cool where people are like, screw it. This doesn't work anymore. I'm going to do whatever the hell. And I think we're beginning to see that. And I am extremely optimistic about the innovation that you're going to see in the next year plus. Well, could it, yeah. Couldn't we see a restaurant with a really good chef that we like, just say, fuck it. Don't come here. Actually. I'm, I'm actually going to devote all my energies that in the old days we would have devoted to how good is my service? What does the inside of my restaurant look like? What is the architecture? All the different nuances that makes a great restaurant. And somebody could just say, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to have the best delivery. I'm going to have the best system for cranking stuff out, getting, getting food, the right temperature, as many people as I can. And maybe that's, 
maybe that's somebody who's going to be a pioneer. Is anybody doing that yet in a way that you feel like is futuristic? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that there's a lot of, every city's got one restaurant or one, two or three restaurant groups that have just adopted a lot of different things. Like I'm thinking about the Linea group in Chicago. I yeah. think they've done an extremely great job of, of doing everything you're saying. But I mean, for this audience, you know, it's, it's the, the ringer podcast network and a lot of sports fans in some ways, the future of restaurants, this is an opportunity for chefs and owners of restaurants to finally embrace analytics, mm. right? It's, it's like, look at the margins, see where things are going to go. And if you don't embrace it, you're, you were going to go to a business anyway. So a lot of people are like, well, I don't need that dining. Why do I need that? Like, this makes me the most amount of money. So you know what? I'm not going to serve three quarters of the menu. I'm just going to sell the top three things that people want anyway. So you're seeing this. And my concern with analytics too is it doesn't make the game beautiful necessarily, right? And I, I'm worried about that artistry. And I've talked a lot of my chef friends who see the writing on the wall and what they need to do. And they're like, I don't want to play that way. You know what I mean? They don't want to play like the Houston Rockets, basically. Well, if analytics takes over, that's good for Domino's and Chipotle and places like that because they've already crunched all the analytics. You have been, you've actually swung my love of Domino's back to loving Domino's again because you did a whole thing about when the COVID started, you were like, just get Domino's. They, the, the oven's like 3,000 degrees. They've mastered basically <clears throat> contactless delivery and it's good yeah. and just I mean, do it. And I did say that and I don't want people to go, oh, you're not supporting independent restaurants. I was simply saying they figured it out. Restaurants are, we're like all the, we're like the Oakland A's without embracing Moneyball yet. And you're competing against the Yankees and these giant fucking market caps. You can't. As a restaurant, you, you are competing against people with access to public markets that are on the stock exchange. You don't, you can't play that game. You just yeah. can't. Domino's, Chipotle, all of these companies, they're not even restaurant groups anymore. They're more like technology companies. You cannot fight them on this. And I spent some time in Domino's and I was like, oh my God, when the pandemic hit, I was like, there's one company that is just going to fucking crush. And it was Domino's because when I was there, I was shocked that no one even touches the food for the most part. Yeah. You know, and pizza is one of the safest things you can eat because of the the, the temperature of the oven. So, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not an equal playing field, but um, at that, at that time, you want to figure out what's the safest thing to eat. Cause I didn't know in, in March, you know, no right. one, no one knew anything. So, well, you did you know. a thing on your podcast about the best food to order. Like what we, cause you figure you order it, they make it, somebody's got to drive it. It's about a 45 minute to 60 minute stretch before you actually get the food. And you arrived at the same conclusion that the Simmons family has arrived at, which is basically it's pizza and sushi. Pizza. Those, those are the safest two things you can get. What else? What else? What am I missing? I guess deli sandwiches. Deli sandwich. Sushi is the craziest thing because I never thought that that would actually travel well. And it's like all sushi. Like every sushi spot is just crushing because they're not getting the nigiri. They're getting the rolls. And that travels really well. It's pizza, cold too. That helps. Yeah. Pizza though, not all pizza travels well, right? Most people, it's like the chicken and egg. Most people that Think about pizza now. Think about the pizza for the Papa John's or the Domino's or the Pizza Hut's. It's a denser crust pizza. And there's a lot of pizza technology about, there's like, what, 40 years of pizza technology about keeping it hot from the pizza oven to your house. It's yeah. unbelievable about that. So that kind of pizza, the commercially available pizza travels really well. The thin crust pizza, 
The Neapolitan style doesn't travel well at all. Sushi, high-end Italian really works well. Yeah, um, like chicken parm, stuff yeah, like that, or pasta, yeah, yeah. meat sauce, all that stuff. Pastas and cream sauces, all that stuff travels really well. And uh, fried chicken, surprisingly, travels extremely well. Really? Yeah. I've had I've had hit or miss on that, but maybe it depends on the place. But like, if you go to like one of the chains, it, it just it, it's it just remains crunchy, you know. And it's something that it gets good. So my my sort of crucible for the best kind of food to get delivered is: does it get better after thirty minutes, or does it not lose any of its integrity after thirty minutes, or does it get better? Um, like banchan fried chicken, for example, amazing. You know, Korean fried chicken, really well. Popeyes, I've gotten a couple times, really good. Um, and the other thing that travels really well is Chinese food. Extremely well. We should have mentioned Chinese food. It's pizza, sushi, Chinese food is the yeah. big three. I, it's yeah. not a big two, it's a big three. Yeah, I've noticed one of the things that really helps is actually what you order. Like if you're ordering, I don't know, a pepperoni and mushroom pizza, the mushrooms can end up making it runny by the time you get there, right? Same thing like if you have some scrambled egg, scramble thingy, and you have mushrooms and other stuff. And then by the time it gets there, it's just super buttery and runny and not great. So you, you almost have to be strategic with that too. What, yeah. what is it going to be like in 45 minutes? I mean, it's counterintuitive. You brought up a good point with pizza and mushrooms and the things that go on it because you'd think cheese probably delivers really well because it's pizza, but it doesn't. Outside of pizza, anything that's melted cheese delivers horribly. Yeah. Right? And you're actually seeing like innovation happen on delivery. And you mentioned it earlier about like people are trying to figure out this game. Tacos, you know, without COVID and the pandemic, I don't know if it would have evolved into what it is now. Like if you try to get tacos, you know, like delivered with it already in the tortilla, it doesn't deliver that well. But um, a lot of these places have figured out how to like serve these kits, right? Where it then it, it there's all these ways you can make it really delicious at home so that's what's good to see but like if you order a quesadilla does not travel well at all trust Taco, me tacos are probably the all-time hit or miss because first of all the the shell has to stay crunchy but they also the way they package it and that's something that i think has been a huge advantage for the sushi places at least out here they put a lot of care and thought into how they how they're separating the food from each other, what's going into where, everything is away so that it doesn't get accidentally opened in the bag as the person's driving. Yeah. No, um, they've had they've had a head start, but I'm telling you, Bill, like all these other kinds of foods are cracking the code. Mm. So I'm seeing it with tacos right now. Um, I've been getting meal kits from like Guisados or Tacos 1986. There's a bunch of places that are getting there and it's um we'll who created the meal kit the meal kit seems relatively new to me is that nancy silverton who's the first one no i mean the meal kit probably like for delivery i mean i mean i don't know a lot of us we're on gold belly um i want to talk about gold belly that's coming up after the break so that's been huge for a lot of restaurants but the meal kit itself i don't think anyone lay, can lay a claim to that because so that's sort of been around for a while because Let's just say you loved going to Momofuku for a while. I mean, like Major Domo in LA, and uh, you wanted to get, you know, some of that food to go. Yeah, I mean, I know restaurants have done it for the, like their special guests. Well, they'll make a lot of the stuff at home, like take it ninety percent there, and then you can finish it at home. So that's sort of been in the arsenal for a lot of restaurants for yeah. a while now. 
All right, we'll, we'll talk Goldberry. We're going to take one more break. This episode is brought to you by Viator. Traveling is all about getting out there and experiencing something new and fun. I had this when I went to Sweden last year. I had to go for Spotify, rolled the dice. I was going alone, had some work friends there. That's it. And I'm like, what's going to happen? Get there. Haven't been to Stockholm ever. Walking around, having a great time. Just just immersed myself in a totally different culture. Really memorable. I remember like 100 different things about it. If you want to make your next trip memorable, you need Viator. It's a website and app that will help you book fun experiences and adventures all over the world. They have over 300,000 bookable experiences in over 190 countries, and it's flexible. They have free cancellation. They have various payment options, 24-7 service, and you can browse millions of reviews from real people so you can make sure you're booking the best adventure for you. They offer all kinds of adventures from simple walking tours to more extreme thrilling adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So that's one app that's over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Download the Viator app now. Use the code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. That's V-I-A-T-O-R with the number 10. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. The experts at eBay know that inspecting every tick of your next watch is time well spent. When you see the blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that every tick of your next timepiece is authentic. Time and time again, every movement inspected, every crown checked, and face verified. eBay dedicates time to the details, and with Authenticity Guarantee, they've got your back. Shop with the same confidence you'll feel when you put on that new timepiece. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. All right, this is not a paid advertisement for Goldbelly. I, as much as I like Goldbelly, it's super expensive still. It's really frustrating. And I think they're in phase one of, of a company and a product that will be really cool in about two years. I think what's interesting for me is having the ability here in Los Angeles to try food that I've heard secondhand or firsthand from people I like where they're like, oh man, if you ever go to Memphis, go to this place. If you're ever in Texas, go to here. Gold Belly has some of those places. And again, it's expensive. It's not for any, any everybody. You finally joined Gold, Gold Belly with, uh, with Momofuku yeah. doing a couple things, which is already like, you can't get it now until mid-January because there's been demand for it. But in general, this feels like a good thing. I have some questions about what is the percent of how good it would be in a restaurant versus getting in a gold belly? But one thing that I've found has been awesome is the pizzas. Yep. There's a couple pizzas that they're prepared perfectly and frozen perfectly. And you just throw them in the freezer and then you make them and you follow the instructions. And it's like 90% as good as the real pizza. Um, what, what, what is the future of gold belly here? I mean, you know, it's been around for a while but it's like many things it's just taken off during the past nine months. And I think it's, I mean, we're, we're entering like the craziest time because things like gold belly are only going to increase in popularity because you have the national reach now. Yeah. So a lot of restaurants are getting wise and they're trying to figure it out how to sell their food to the most amount of people all the time. And the thing that gold belly I think has done really well is that you can't get the whole restaurant, right? You're only getting the things that they're working with the restaurant that will travel well, that will freeze well, or 
that can get shipped to you the next day without losing quality. And that's the smart thing, right? So you can get King Salmon uh, from the Pacific Northwest and uh, Chris Bianco pizza that's frozen, like everything in between. Like, it, it, How about lobster rolls from Maine? I, did you get that? I haven't gotten that one yet, but it, it's highly recommended, apparently. <laughs> Here's the thing, man. It is expensive, but when you want that fix, people want that that flavor, that taste of a restaurant or an area. So I think it's at the, the really beginning stages of like dominance. Um, so it's going to happen more and more. I think it's going to get way less, way less expensive. It's going to be more affordable as the logistics gets figured out. Well, I'm sure there's going to be a couple of competitors that pop up too. And yeah. it will be no different than what happened with Postmates and everybody else. What made you, because initially you resisted this, um, well, you, you finally ended up jumping on with a couple of your dishes, including the pork buns. Um, what kind of process was it to decide how to mail these out at a quality that Dave Chang psycho, um, <laughs> is comfortable with, with, uh, people eating his food at an acceptable level of quality for you? Well, that was the big thing is quality, right? If, you know, it's one of the reasons why I've never done delivery of Momofuku food, because if someone's watching it, you know, eating it in front of their TV at their apartment, they're going to still judge it the same like they were going to the restaurant. So we wanted to make sure we took our time on it, not because we were against it per se. We wanted to figure out how we could ensure the quality. So uh, that was it. It was a long process of figuring out the logistics of making sure that we could do it on a consistent level. Cause there's nothing worse than getting something from a restaurant you want and having it suck. Yeah. Right. So there was a lot of testing involved. I mean, a lot. I, I, I can't tell you how many people got the shipment and we just got real honest feedback and we dialed it in. So that's what took so long. So it kind of um, hurts that I wasn't one of the testers. That's fine. <laughs> Whatever. We weren't going all the way to LA. Plus, I was the one that was getting it over the past few months. <laughs> did you flip out? Did you have a, did you have a tantrum at any point about no, how bad it was? No, it, it, you know, it, it was pretty consistent the entire way. But a lot of it was just like when you unbox everything, you, wanna, you want an experience. You want this whole thing that you don't want to just open up the box and be whatever. So there has to be instructions. They have to, there's this sense of discovery. So I, I think we got there. I'm pretty happy with where we're at. It's a pretty cool time where you can basically cherry pick some of the great restaurants in America and try one or two of their special dishes. If you wanted to splurge every once in a while and really try it out. I like that we're at that point and I'm excited to see um, where that goes. On the flip side, I was going through, I was deleting a whole bunch of, I had, for some reason, I had way too many videos on my phone and I hadn't really gone through and my stuff was getting, my phone was starting to be slow. So I'm like, I'm just going to go because we're in month nine of the pandemic. This is the point of the pandemic where you rent the Tyson Jones fight <laughs> and you delete videos from your iPhone as you're watching it. And I found this video of when we took when House and Nathan and I went to um, went to uh, Major Domo and you brought out the what was what's the giant thing called? The, the best thing, the giant rib thing. Yeah, the 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 the, 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 the play, whole play short rib where we slice the table side. Yeah, yeah. So that guy's wheeling it out, and I'm videotaping it, and I'm like narrate doing narrating music, and I'm cutting a house, and house is like it looks like he's gonna have a conniption, and we're all just like we are gonna make love to this giant short rib thing, and and the place is packed, and it just and I was like, God damn it, this feels like it was a hundred years ago, 
It really does. I mean, you just describing it, I was like, I want to eat that. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we're going to get back to dining. It's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of change, and I can't wait to do it. Because the last meal we had together before Parks was uh, at uh, Chispaca. Yeah. Um, and that was like the last supper for 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 many of us for a while. And I think it's going to happen again. It's just going to take some time and, and there's going to be some seismic shifts, but uh, it's an adjustment period. And it's 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 we'll see. We'll see what happens. That night is in my top five from February of I have no idea how I didn't get COVID that month nights because we had the <laughs> dinner and then we went to some bar for a birthday party. It was oh, right. absolutely packed. And it was like two weeks before everything got shut down. Yeah, we were in a giant ballroom in K-Town. <laughs> and it was right. packed. Like, people yeah. spitting. It, it was loud. People are just spitting on each other as they're talking. And it's like, this is exactly how you get COVID. We dodged a bullet. People and a couple were coming of in, in from February. all over the world. All over the world at that party. I was like, oh, my God, you're right. How the hell did we not get COVID then? I had another one at All-Star Weekend in Chicago. I ended up at some bar. There was like a 1,000 people in there. And it was packed. Like, People packed like sardines, same thing, <laughs> leaning over, spitting on each other. And you just think like it just it just would have taken one of those. But, you know, I can't wait for that to happen. What, what do you think is going to happen with uh, stadiums, Bill, and, 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 and sports? So I'll tell you this. Now, I don't know if this is false bravado, but I think the leagues are really confident things are going to be normal May, June for two reasons. One is the vaccine. And, you know. God only knows when everybody's going to be able to get it and the political stuff that comes with that and how it gets doled out. If there's complications, who knows? But you, between that and the rapid testing is getting better hmm. by April. I think the NBA, I think they're looking at June, July as like, we're going to have fans at playoff games and we need it. And that's how it's going to play out. And we have to prepare like this is the reality for us. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But there is a weird confidence right now. And I think the same thing for the concert industry. Mm -hmm. I think places like Live Nation are like, we're having concerts this summer and we're booking all these arenas and people are going to want to go to concerts because they want to get the fuck out of their house for the apartment for the first time. When do you think you'll go to a Clippers game? Like, do you miss live games? I really do. I'm way more than... I think I'm mad at myself for taking it for granted. I actually miss... The thing I probably miss the most is just, I always had the ability to just go to Boston, go to a Celtic game or a Red Sox game, hang out with my dad, go to a couple of places. And now it's like Boston shut down. And just like not having that option has been really like messed with my head. I mean, granted, there's worse things than the pandemic, but um, I miss going to the, the Boston cameos way more than just, you know, the typical Clipper game. But I really miss the finals. I really felt it, especially those last two rounds where, you know, I always try to go to a couple finals games or if the Celtics were in the Eastern finals, stuff like that, and the energy and the atmosphere. And just having that removed was weird. Like Celtics, Miami, I would have tried to go to every one of those games. Right. You know, and it's just like, nope, nobody's going. I mean, and I know what would have happened. We would have drawn up a plan about what restaurants to eat in each town. Right. <laughs> right? No, seriously. Well, yeah. especially like it could have been a Boston LA finals. Which would have been uh, would have been awesome. When do you think it's coming back? Because I, I I am optimistic for June, July, and I, I think so many people have so many incentives, so many smart people who have means and money to yeah. try to figure this out for everybody else. That um, I'm optimistic. 
I'm optimistic. I think things are going to go back to normal as normal can be probably around April, May, you know, yeah. talking to people that are much smarter than me. But um, I, I, I think concerts and games are going to go back to normal, uh, which is why I, I have some concern about the restaurants, which is why if you're listening to this, you know, you need to continue to support restaurants to make sure that, you know, we people have places to go before the games and after the games. Because uh, it, this has been a very, very difficult year for everybody, but the restaurant industry has probably been hit the hardest of all the yeah. things that you care about. Yeah. We didn't, one thing to talk about before we go, because this is definitely something that happened in Manhattan Beach, um, where the outdoor dining thing, when you go, Manhattan Beach has kind of weirdly been transformed in a cool way, where you think like when you go to Europe, you know, you go to England and there's just people in bars and there's a lot of people outdoors at bars, especially like three o'clock, four o'clock. I remember when we went there for the Olympics, it really struck me like how much fun London was where it's just like, oh man, people are just out and about and you could feel it in the streets in a way that you're just never going to feel it here in LA. The outdoor dining thing, which requires basically grabbing parking spaces, grabbing territory, either shutting down streets or making them one lane instead of two or one way streets, stuff like that. But it does kind of have a revitalizing effect on little areas. And I wonder if we're going to carry that over when this ends. Where, like in Boston, for example, Charles Street, which is one way, but has a couple of really good restaurants on it. And they pushed the outdoor dining out before everything got shut down. And I wasn't there, but my dad was like, it's really cool here. You feel like, you know, it's like Boston is just kind of on steroids, basically. And I wonder, is that going to transfer? I hope it stays because, you know, I haven't been in New York for a couple months, but everyone has been saying that it's amazing because all the restaurants, it's like there's no traffic with cars. It's, it's, uh, it puts the diner first and it's just, it's a different way of experiencing things. Like we just had it when we went to parks, like dining yeah. outdoors was cool. And it was very similar to me and actually being in Korea and Seoul where so much of the dining is on the street. Yeah. And I I hope because, you know, I, I I hope that the government and the local, you know, authorities don't fuck that up because being able to like walk around and drink and and that's another thing. You can like buy takeaway booze. You can just like sort of drink anywhere, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now. That's that's a lot of fun. It's almost like being in an outdoor casino without the tables too. <laughs> <laughs> They never figured out the outdoor blackjack table scene correctly. A couple of them tried it. The wind had a really good outdoor blackjack thing, but it was only like six or seven tables. But I always felt like that was undervalued. Too too much distraction going on because they're usually by the pools and there's yeah. music. Yeah, I, I can't I can't do it. I need to, I need to like be with someone like you in a dark corner and just focusing. And it's not fun. This is this is a this is a job. You need it, you need it just the two of us in a death match to see who goes to bed first. <laughs> Who's going to break the other? I think you, I won the last one. You, I, you, I outlasted you the last time. You clearly won. Um it is if you want to see Bill Simmons like willpower. It is at the gambling table. He will not leave. It is unbelievable. I I I'll never ever <laughs> go head to head with you on that again. I just really like playing blackjack and my wife's always suspicious of it. She thinks there's got to be more. You got to be doing stuff. I'm like, nope, put, put a camera on me. <laughs> I'm usually in the same place for nine straight hours and I'm not proud of it, but that's I miss just it, the way it is. I miss it so much. I am not joking. I, I, I'm, 
one of the main reasons why I want to get vaccinated is just so I can gamble at a table. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We always joke about it, me and you and house and people like that having a gambling problem. To me, the real sign of a gambling problem is if you're gambling in a casino right now, like if you're playing blackjack with plexiglass on either side of you and a mask on, you've got, that's going too far. I wouldn't even do that. Nor I, but, uh, what's fun about that? That defeats the whole purpose. I it's know, about like the vibe and catching a hot table. You're wearing a fucking mask. Um, my favorite podcast I think I did in the last three years was when you, me and house did the post game show after we were up all night on my pod. It was like, it was my dream idea for a podcast that could never happen. Just the post-game Vegas show of guys recapping their, uh, their 4 a.m. night at the tables. It really I, worked. It was, I was in no shape to do it. And I think that's what made it so fun. <laughs> <laughs> All of us were, were not doing great. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. As I'm getting older, I don't know if I can handle it. Um, any last question, any, um, we've had nine months here to just tinker in the, in the kitchen. One of the pods that we developed that we launched two weeks ago, Recipe Club. So you did turkey and then you did, you did a whole stuffing podcast, which is, I thought one of the key points in that podcast was stuffing is this thing we think about once a year, but if anyone made it at any other point of the year, you'd be like, what? You're making stuffing? Why the fuck are you doing that? But anyway, you're trying to figure out the perfect stuffing recipe. You've done all this trial and error, mostly out of boredom, and you're also cooking stuff for your family and your young son. Um, have you stumbled on anything that you're like, wow, like almost like a pitcher realizing, like, oh, I can throw a split finger. I didn't know I could do this. Yeah. Did, did you develop a new pitch? I, I have, you know, I've always, you know, it's almost like if you want to talk about baseball, I was one of those pitchers that was always fucking around with the knuckleball, mm. you know, but I never, never had any time or I never wanted to put it in the game. And the microwave to me is the knuckleball. The microwave, okay? Yeah. And I have cooked and so many meals in nine months in the microwave. It is, I've always loved it. I've always had an affinity for it. But now, man, it's, it literally is a future machine here in present day. And I've cooked so many goddamn recipes that aren't supposed to be made in a microwave in a microwave. So yeah, the microwave to me is like, discovering the three-point shot or something like that. It's unbelievable. Is there a high-end microwave? Is there a special microwave or it doesn't matter what the microwave is? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. There are some bells and whistles you want. You want it to be rotating, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you don't have to buy a super expensive microwave. The The wattage really makes a difference, but, you know, you just have to test it out. So you don't have to buy, like, a $1,000 microwave. The, the cheapest one on the market, I think, is, like, 50 bucks. You know it's been a wrinkle in my house? My daughter has, who for whatever reason is a really good cook. And I don't really fully understand that. I think it's part, she can follow instructions really well, which is why she's good at soccer. Cause soccer is like repetition, being in the same places, following instructions. Um, but also the trial and error, she can kind of get the hang of that too. But she made this banana bread last week that was out of control. And all of us were like, what the fuck? This is like, you could sell this. So um, the trial and error of that, which, you know, in general, you're in a good shape because you've been able to hang out with your uh, your young son way more than you probably would have if you were working and flying around and doing 17 TV shows and stuff like that. I My daughter is 15 and a half. This is probably the last time I'm ever going to really spend like this much time with her. And it's been fun, like 
being like her subject for the trial and error bakery stuff. You know, just already getting nostalgic. Don't don't let her become a chef though. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, no, I, no, no, I never would. <laughs> no, you want it like this, right? The best case scenario yeah. is somebody who can cook, but they're not doing it professionally and driving themselves crazy and all that stuff. I think it's so funny. All the chefs are like, don't let, don't become like me. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get hate mail. I don't give a shit. I'm like, do you want Hugo to become a chef? I'm like, absolutely not. I don't want to become a chef. It's so fucking hard. But if you, you know, your daughter's too talented at other things. So she winds up being a cook. I, I, I will have a talk with her to convince her otherwise. Could be just bakery. Could be like pies yeah. and coffee cakes and, and stuff like that. Um, Chang. Great to see you for the we second will. time. Uh, more importantly, congrats on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. That was incredible. It was a rare, it was a rare, positive, happy story. A real positive moment. Yeah. Thanks, I Bill. don't know how you top it. I think I'm worried for you next time you go into Vegas. You're going to be like, you know, hey. be, your chest is going to be out. We're going to do Vegas together. I'm not yeah. going back to Vegas without you. So we're going to do it together. We'll be able to talk about it then. I'll tell you this much. It won't be with me wearing a mask, having plexiglass on either side of me. When we go back to Vegas, it'll be real gambling. All right. Good to see you, Chang. Thanks, bro. That's it for the BS podcast. We put up a new rewatchables, Wall Street. If you missed it, me and Brian Koppelman have another book of basketball podcast coming this week as well. Stay tuned for that. It is Wednesday night. And then one more podcast on this feed. Enjoy the rest of the week. I want to see them on a way so